He is more than a story. He is more than a comic book superhero. He is more than a symbol of hope. He represents our greatest aspirations. He is everything we think we can be. And yet, even with all the strength and all the power in all of the world, he may not be able to meet his greatest challenges and redeem his family's legacy. For he is the son of El. Chapter 7 Just a Bit of Kryptonite Able to fly around the world on a whim, Clark found being Superman was its own full-time job. Meeting people from every nation, Clark would commit a little time each day to learning new languages. Different dialects came quickly to him, as though he had some innate ability to understand their meaning. Clark's journalism was soon influenced by his travels. He wrote about the daily lives of normal people around the world, capturing a common thread tying humanity together. A small Turkish village wasn't that different from Smallville. His boss, Perry White, gave him a weekly column exploring small-town life around the world. Great content, Kent. As long as you can do this by satellite and I don't have to fly you around the world, keep it up. Ron Trout didn't hide his disappointment in Clark. A weekly column wasn't what he had been training him toward. Though Clark still worked on local stories, they were far and few in between. Ron cut Clark no slack. That column is all fluff and filler. He didn't appreciate Clark's exploration of small-town experiences. This stuff is cute, but it won't hold power accountable. Clark wasn't so sure. The people in his column were rarely listened to. He was amplifying their voices for the world to hear. As Superman's role on the global stage continued to expand, Clark remembered the wisdom his mother had given him. Go live with the humans, Kal-El. Be a friend to them. That is enough for now. Clark set aside time with his friends and family. Whenever he had a story he thought Jimmy would appreciate, he managed to get his friend assigned to be his photographer. Meanwhile, he and Pete got together to go fishing several times a year, and Clark managed to have dinner with the Kents every week. Lana seemed extra busy in her life and in her relationship with Ted, and though they still wrote back and forth to one another, the letters were less frequent. The same could be said about Clark and Lois's lunches together. Their schedules had slowly been shifting until they no longer had time to meet in the afternoon. Clark missed spending time with Lois and decided the best way to catch up with her was to ask her to dinner. Like a date? Clark Kent, are you asking me out? Well, uh, yeah. Sure. Consider it a date. Oh, wow, Kent. Way to bring the smoothness. Um, I didn't mean... Look, just quit while you're ahead. When do you want to pick me up for the date? Clark hadn't really planned to ask Lois on a formal date. He was initially just thinking that since lunch was not available, dinner made more sense than breakfast. Yet now that he was considering it a date, Clark wondered if maybe it wasn't just her ironic sense of humor he was missing. Maybe there was something more between them, contrary to what her constant teasing suggested. Showing up at her apartment to meet up for the date, Clark found Lois looking absolutely stunning. He could not hide his blushing. Whoa there, farm boy, calm down! The embarrassment didn't last long. Lois was remarkably easy on him in the context of a date. Their waiter that night took the brunt of her sharp wit. Assessing his performance each time he left them, she delivered her insights with cunning timing. By the time he had served them their main course, she had developed a working theory. I'm not kidding about that waiter, either. 
You can see it in his eyes. That Stockholm Syndrome. He's probably working under some tyrant management. Clark played along. Well, we certainly aren't going to stand by in the face of injustice, are we? Not a chance. I say we infiltrate the staff and start a union. The next time the waiter came back around to refill their waters, she leaned in and whispered, Viva la revolution! The waiter looked up at Lois in bewilderment. She gave him a reassuring wink. Her humor was one of the things Clark loved most about her. After dinner, neither of them thought the date should end. For Lois, the choice was obvious. Since you live in that pod complex, why don't you come over to my place and have a drink, hmm? Clark couldn't argue. His home was nothing to brag about. Besides, he wasn't sure he wanted her to see it. His crime-fighting headquarters and wall of conspiracy diagrams might seem a little too over the top, even for a reporter. Back at Lois's apartment, they spoke late into the night. Lois began to open up, talking about her life since college and a little about her parents. But Clark didn't know how to open up. He spoke about the Kents, yet when she asked about his parents, he just told her they were good Christians and that they died in a car accident while driving a blue Ford. Lois didn't seem to notice his deflection and lack of details. Instead, she was reminded of another story to tell. Eventually, in a drunken ramble, Lois had a little confession to make. Honestly, after saying yes to this date, I had some doubts. Oh? What was there to doubt? Oh, you know. You being so young, and such a country boy. I didn't realize I had so much going against me. What possibly inspired you to agree? Well, now that you mention it... Lois leaned in close to Clark. I don't know if you've heard this before, but without your glasses, you look almost just like him. Like who? Superman, silly. With no more warning, Lois removed Clark's glasses from his face and passionately kissed him. Melting away in his arms, she woke up the next morning in her own bed, still wearing the dress from the night before. There was no sign of Clark until she found him sleeping on the couch. What are you doing out here? Clark stood up immediately. Oh, I figured it was so late I should stay here instead of heading back to my place. I mean on the couch, you doofus. Well, I didn't want to take advantage of you. You had a lot to drink. Oh, you are such a sweetie. She cooed as she greeted him with a hug and a gentle kiss. From then on, the two of them casually began to date, introducing a secretive element of deception into Clark's already complicated life. He always had to be careful about revealing too much about himself. Thankfully, being a busy reporter, Lois was sympathetic to Clark's erratic schedule. Short of being a superhero, she was a far busier reporter than he ever was. With both of them having limited time to pursue intimacy, Clark was free to be Superman as much as he was needed. The hustle of their careers meant they never made plans ahead of time. Everything was played by ear. It wasn't until Christmas Eve of that year that Lois asked Clark if he had any plans for the holiday. I'm having dinner with my folks at the farm. She scoffed. You booked a trip for Christmas Eve? You must not have heard. All flights are canceled. Trains too. We're snowed in. Clark hadn't heard. He, of course, wasn't planning to go by train or plane, but instead feigned that he knew about the canceled flights all along. Oh, I meant that we're having dinner over a video chat. Oh, that's so quaint and awkward. Well then. Lois leaned in close to Clark's ear so that no one else in the office would hear her. How about you spend the night at my place and we can exchange gifts in the morning? Clark had already told Jonathan and Martha that he would be there for the holiday, but he didn't want to back out on Lois. So he agreed to spend Christmas morning with her and called the Kents to tell them he wouldn't make it that night. 
Instead, he promised he would see them on Christmas Day in the afternoon. Yet when the afternoon came around, Lois decided that an awkward video chat with dinner wouldn't be so bad. She promptly invited herself over by offering to use her kitchen to cook Christmas dinner. When she started prepping their meal, Clark made up an excuse that he had to go back to his apartment for something he'd forgotten. What could possibly be so important that you have to go out in this weather? Uh, it's a surprise. You'll see. I'll be right back. Offering no further explanation, he dashed out the door, flew to his apartment, picked up his Christmas present for Martha and Jonathan, and flew to Smallville like a rocket. The Kents were crestfallen to learn he couldn't stay long. While they exchanged presents, he asked them what in the world he should bring back to Lois as an excuse for why he had to leave. Martha knew just the thing. She gave him one of her pies, still warm from the oven. They said their goodbyes, knowing they would soon be video chatting. Clark stepped out on the porch. With his pie in hand and a bag full of presents slung over his shoulder like some kind of Santa Claus, Clark took just a moment to look across the field. A car was pulling up to the Lang family farm. He saw Lana and Ted unloading their bags as her parents, Sarah and Hank, greeted them. Just before going in, Lana stopped and stood out in the early winter dusk. She turned to face Clark and their eyes locked, even at that distance. Just as Ted came back out to carry another load to the car, Clark flew away. What are you looking at? Oh, a shooting star. Did you make a wish? She had. She kept it to herself. Lana wished Clark a Merry Christmas. She hoped he was happy. His letters gave her doubt. They hinted at something Clark longed for, yet never said. Either he didn't know it was there, or he had no words to name it. Back at Lois's apartment, dinner was nearly done. She was delighted when Clark walked in with a freshly baked pie, though found herself in disbelief. How did you have time to heat it? And how did it stay warm through the snow? Clark shrugged. It was nearly time for the dinner video chat. As Lois had guessed, it was nothing but awkward. The Kents couldn't bring themselves to speak naturally. Most of their family dinner banter centered around Clark's adventures. To fill the void, Lois led much of the conversation when Martha wasn't telling an amusing anecdote. Before that night, Clark had never fully appreciated Martha's ability to steer a conversation topic. She could turn it away from whatever she pleased. He had learned to do the same in order to keep his two lives separate. It was effortless, yet it was also a constant chore, especially dealing with Lois. She was a reporter after all. Lois knew how to ask a line of questions, always keeping Clark on his toes. For months, as they dated, it became a kind of game between them. Who was the better reporter? Clark had no doubt. Watching her up close and in action was like a master class in journalism. Lois was a far more daring investigator than he had ever been. When he wasn't Superman, Clark tried to keep a somewhat lower profile. Lois took risks he would never consider. She was an especially adorable little woman. Clark suspected this got her some leeway in her escapades. One morning, as they headed to work together, Lois confessed to Clark that she had a new scoop. She had managed to get an entry badge for a security firm called Hive. They're basically 50% of LexCorp's security detail. I figure I can slip in with the morning shift and work my way through the office as the new girl all day. I really wish you'd reconsider. I knew you'd say that. That's why I waited until today to tell you. Don't worry. I'll keep you posted. Indeed, Lois kept her promise. As she made her way deeper into the facilities, she sent Clark updates all morning. They started out as playful, but progressively came more serious. The final message was downright ominous. Uh-oh. This might be some kind of experimental weapons factory. 
Discovering the factory inside of Hive headquarters was otherworldly to Lois. None of the technology in the room was even remotely familiar to her. Admittedly, Clark was right to object to her plan. She was in well over her head. It was while attempting to sneak out that she tripped some kind of alarm, instantly blocking her phone signal. When Clark stopped receiving her messages, he transformed into Superman and hurried to Hive headquarters. Had he thought things through, Clark would have perhaps gone about it differently. His only plan going in was to make saving Lois appear to be coincidental. By looking through the walls of the building, he quickly spotted her hiding in an otherwise vacant room. To divert attention away from Lois, he walked straight through the front door, asking to inspect the facilities. It seemed like an absurd plan, even to him. Yet he did not expect it was so preposterous that he would be met in the lobby by two walking tanks. These turrets on legs opened fire on him, perfectly playing into Clark's plan. A hostile reception made it easier to rationalize rushing forward. Once inside, he found his way to the experimental factory. He didn't know what he was looking at, but he became compelled to break it to pieces. When he was satisfied with his mild wreckage, Clark scanned again through the building, spotting Lois where she cowered under a desk. He broke through several walls until he pretended to stumble upon her. For her benefit, he tried to speak in his most heroic voice. Is there anybody in here? Lois crawled out from under a desk. Superman? Oh, thank God. Please get me out of here. Not a moment after she asked, he had broken them both out of the building. Soaring above Metropolis, he turned back to her. Is there anywhere in particular I can drop you off? Lois pointed out her apartment building to Superman and he set them both down on her balcony. Upon landing, she thanked him with a long and passionate kiss. Clark didn't say anything. He smiled and flew off, feeling a bit elated by the experience and a bit bothered that she had kissed him. That night, when Clark arrived at her apartment, Lois seemed distant. She hadn't remembered to message Clark until an hour after she got home. When she finally told him she had been saved by Superman, she said nothing about the kiss. He wondered if it was right to be upset. He was the one who had been lying to her for all of this time. Clark was more upset with himself than anyone else. He had destroyed something he didn't understand by acting hot-headed out of passion. He doubted whether justice had prevailed. No news came out about the incident that week, and Lois had nothing to write about it either. She didn't understand anything she had seen and found no documents while she had been inside. When Clark learned no police report had been filed, he suggested that it was either a criminal organization or possibly a top-secret government operation. The latter was what Lois was afraid of. But if it was some secret op, why did Superman smash it up? He must have done that for a good reason, right? Clark was ashamed of himself. He had only gone there to save Lois, yet Lois was using Superman's arrival to justify her own involvement. The days dragged on until Clark decided on going back to Hive headquarters to see what else he could learn. That night, he came back to the building to find it completely empty. Just after he left, Clark heard the voice of Lex Luthor call his name. Superman, I am transmitting on an ultra-high frequency. Only you can hear this message. Come to my office, immediately. On the chance this was an actual emergency, Clark flew straight to LexCorp. Luther awaited him on his balcony, seated at his couches and coffee table. He ate an extravagant dinner for such a small table. Thank you for joining me, Superman. Must you insist I keep calling you that silly name? Surely you have a real name. Tell it to me now, would you? Clark wondered if Luther wanted him to speak his true name in the same way that Clip Plixum had to say his own name. 
Superman squinted at him, attempting to measure the intent of his request. Luther ignored it. Will you have a seat? Or do you insist on standing as well? Clark continued to severely scrutinize the man. Luther finished chewing his bite of food before he continued. It doesn't matter. Tell me. I understand you recently paid Hive a visit. I'm interested. What do you know about them? What do you know, and when did you learn it? Clark hadn't expected this line of questioning. Worse still, he knew next to nothing about Hive. All he had known before going in was that Hive worked with LexCorp. He didn't want to say this and have it connected back to Lois. It seemed they still didn't know she had been there. So instead, though he was unsure about it, he made up a story about hearing someone call for help and finding himself greeted by heavily armed robots inside. Hearing himself say it, the story didn't sound that bad and actually made a lot of sense to Clark. Luther was not persuaded. What kind of fool do you take me for? You're just going to sell me some childish story? Fine. Here, take this. Luther put a small metal box on the table and slid it over to Superman before he continued eating. Go ahead, open it. Superman picked up the box, opened it, and was astonished to see a small glowing crystal shard. Unlike the crystal he had been given by his parents, this one glowed a sickly green and was jagged and fractured. Looking at it, Clark was drawn into an endless sense of despair. Overtaken by a grief too great to bear, Clark could not bring himself to move. He wanted to close the box and set it back down, but he didn't have the willpower to do so. Clark became consumed with one question. Why him? Why was he the only survivor? His whole family and all of his people were gone. Why must he remain? These thoughts looped endlessly in his mind. Clark barely managed to hear what Luther was saying to him. He was talking about something called kryptonite. Before Clark knew it, Luther had gotten up, walked around the table, and took the box back from Superman. Clark felt disoriented. He was able to make out Luther's words better as Luther walked away from him with the box. We destroyed the rest of them, and we can do worse to you. That was a whole planet. This is just a small shard of kryptonite. So enough of these games. Tell me all you know about Hive, and tell me where and when you learned it. Clark did all he could to stay focused, but his mind was not functioning. His body wasn't either. Though still nearly paralyzed, he managed to stagger backwards until he fell over the railing of the balcony. With all of the concentration he could muster, Clark brought himself out of the freefall. In a hampered flight, he made his way home to his apartment to sleep. Still feeling sick when he woke up, he persevered through a workday at the Daily Planet. While Superman was going to have to take the day off, Clark barely felt well enough to work at his desk. Despite not feeling well, he went in regardless. He had many new questions to answer. What was that stone Luther called kryptonite? And what was the source of its power? What was Hive up to? And why did Luther care? What was so important about Hive that Luther was willing to reveal he knew about Krypton? Lois had also returned to the gutted Hive headquarters and found herself dismayed. Over dinner, she vented to Clark. There's no trace of them, like nowhere. Even the businesses they used to work with haven't heard of them. Are we supposed to believe they never existed? Clark was equally frustrated. For all of his efforts to learn about it, kryptonite might as well have also not existed. No geologists anywhere had heard of it. Clark's unanswered questions led him nowhere but to a sense of despair. 
He was afraid of this strange stone. Learning about it was his only defense. Days passed and Superman was barely seen. Clark, meanwhile, had little to say. Evenings with Lois were spent in silence. She wondered if they had lost some spark. Saying nothing, she hoped Clark would open up. Clark could sense this in her, but he didn't know where to start. To avoid the conversation, he began staying late at the Daily Planet. It was while leaving the office late one night that a mysterious man in a trench coat asked Clark if he was looking for Hive. The man introduced himself as a private detective by the name of John Jones. We shouldn't be seen together, so I don't have long. John Corbin is Luther's assistant. He will eventually lead you back to Hive. The sound of footsteps and rattling keys echoed from down the hall, startling Clark. When he looked back, the man was gone. He had vanished in the long hallway without a sound, as though he had never existed. Clark didn't know what to make of Jones, but he had the clue he was looking for. A name. Corbin. Having this one direction to go in restored his sense of purpose. Superman was back. He resumed his patrols in Metropolis like never before. All the while, he kept a close eye on Corbin, tracking his movements from high in the sky. From Lois's perspective, Clark had gone from being quiet and emotionally distant to being altogether unavailable. Should she see him at all, he spent all their time together brooding on Corbin or Luther. Clark's calculating plotting consumed him. He never saw it coming when Lois set a box of his things on his desk. We're over. I don't have time for this petulant stoicism. If you have nothing to say, fine, I have nothing to say. Yet Lois had far more to say. Over the next few days, she scathed at Clark every chance she could. It drove her mad that he was entirely unbothered by it. Clark didn't notice her grief. He was fixated on Corbin. In his off hours, Corbin had become Clark's hobby while he kept watch on him from above. Corbin's routine included visits to a waterfront drainpipe. Several times a day, John Corbin went in and out. Was this where Hive had relocated to? Corbin unloaded several crates from his van, dollying them into the drainpipe. Several minutes later, he appeared to load the same crates back into his van. Clark decided this was the moment to make his move. Once Corbin finally drove away, Clark went in to investigate. Nothing about the drainpipe was unusual. It was damp and had no exits but the one he had come through. The drainpipe was no place to put a secret lair. As this realization washed over Clark, footsteps from behind him caught him off guard. It was Corbin with a slingshot. He had already let his shot go before Clark turned around. Taking no effort, Superman plucked Corbin's marble from the air. Only after he caught it did he realize the marble was carved from kryptonite. As Clark's hands closed around the small green stone, his knees gave out. This marble was a part of the same stone he had held at LexCorp Tower. He could sense it the moment it landed in his palm. Through touching it, he could sense millions of souls crying out. Krypton was dead. His grief for his planet seared into his heart. He didn't want to survive its end. This was all that remained of his birth home. Kalel was only a baby when he left. He had no choice. He was as powerless to its destruction as he was powerless to this kryptonite. While he lay inside the drain pipe in agony, John Corbin and Lex Luthor stood over him. Luthor looked down on Superman with disdain. You don't know when to give up, but I don't care. Fine, don't answer my questions. Don't take an honest paying job when I offer you one. But be sure to stay out of my business. Don't follow my employees and don't force me into setting childish traps for you. Corbin jumped in. 
What kind of fool doesn't think I'll see him like an extra star in the sky at night? Lex motioned snidely at Superman. Oh, John, he is no fool. It's only that these creatures have no humility. He simply didn't think he was vulnerable, so he took no caution to hide himself. Their arrogance is their downfall. Kryptonians cannot help themselves. I'll leave him to you to instill a lesson. Then, let him rot away here, forever for all I care. Lex Luthor departed, and Corbin promptly gave Superman a beating. He berated him for hours, but Corbin's cruelest words paled in comparison to the beating Clark gave himself. He had failed his planet and his people before he was born. Clark was resigned to take the beating. Eventually, Corbin had no energy left to take out on Superman. He retrieved his marble and left a small chip of kryptonite on Superman's forehead. The weight of this tiny stone upon Clark dug deeper than all of Corbin's blows. If you're smart, you'll let yourself die here. Clark didn't know if he had a choice. Lost in grief, he was unsure how long he had spent lying in that drainpipe. Sometime in the night, the small stone was removed from Clark's forehead. He heard a clatter as it was tossed deep into the drainpipe. Coming to consciousness, Clark discovered he had been saved by the detective, John Jones. Though John didn't quite look right, Clark was unsure if he was still delirious as he watched Jones slowly morph in front of him. The detective became a bald, green-skinned alien, and then altered again into a more human form. He was still green, yet mimicking Superman's attire, with a blue cape, boots, and shorts. Are you alright? I will be. Is that you, John? Clark sat up in a daze. I should probably reintroduce myself. I am Jean Jones. I came from Mars ages ago and became a prisoner here on Earth. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. There is nothing to apologize for. Unbeknownst to you, you freed me from my captors at Hive a week ago. Huh, that must be why Luther was so upset with me. That is how I knew I could trust you. I am so sorry. I didn't mean for this to happen to you when I had you follow Corbin. I thought you would surely do as you had done before. Well, sorry to let you down. I tend to do that. Don't be absurd. You did all you could. We all have our weaknesses. Thanks. I'm learning that. You are still hurt. Let me help you home. I thought you said we can't be seen together. As Clark spoke, Jean Jones slowly morphed again, this time taking the form of a little old lady. Clark transformed into his normal clothes and the two of them walked toward his home. He could barely hold himself up and looked a little out of sorts, putting his weight on a seemingly frail old woman. Just after they parted and Clark went into his apartment building, he heard Jean Jones speaking to him, yet telepathically through his thoughts. Contact me like this if you need me, Kalel from Krypton. I will be listening out for you. Clark froze in the building lobby and looked around. He wasn't sure how to respond. Was his every thought a response? Finally, after minutes of standing in the silent lobby like a fool, looking for a voice in his head, Clark realized he hadn't been home in a few days at least. Checking the mailbox, he found it packed full. While he rode up the elevator, Clark sorted through the mail. Getting to his apartment door, he discovered the final letter was from Lana. It was postmarked weeks before the others. Apparently, it had gotten lost en route. He opened the letter as he opened his apartment door, reading it as he entered. By the time he closed the door, he saw it was a wedding invitation. 
The date of the wedding was last week. For the second time that day, Clark's knees gave out all at once. He slumped into a pile. It was Friday. There was no kryptonite present, but he just lay there the whole weekend, collapsed next to the front door. Thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Bluefoot. Sign of L is written and produced by myself. I love telling the story and appreciate any support you can offer to keep me going. Rate and review the show, share it on social media, and talk about it in real life. Most especially, become a patron at patreon.com bluefoot. I can't thank you enough. This story was inspired by the Superman and DC Comics and Characters originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with additional contributions by Bill Finger, John Sakella, Robert Bernstein, Al Plastino, Joseph Samuelson, and Joe Serta. Manuscript editing assistance by Trisha Reel. Music in this episode was made by Poddington Bear, Will Baines, Chad Crouch, Blue Dot Sessions, Vortex, Kyle Preston, David Hillowitz, Ricky Eats Acid, Johnny Ripper, Tortu Supersonic, BioUnit, and Jazar. See the episode notes for details. For more of my work, Get yourself a deck of Omen Quest cards at omenquestcards.com, a deck of cards to inspire simple storytelling games. And be sure to listen to the next episode, Chapter 8, Super Friends. <laughs>